My name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Hungarian director Miklos Jancsó. And I apologize if I pronounced that incorrectly, which I'm almost sure that I did. And today, in tribute to the master, the microphone will begin in the distance, and then it will slowly move towards us, arriving just in time to capture something horrible, and then it'll move away. So for people that are unfamiliar with this director, and I would not be surprised if you are because he is not somebody that I feel gets talked about that much. Have you heard about him before, Will? I had not heard about him until you raised him, which is crazy because he's considered by many to be Hungary's greatest filmmaker. Even looking on the internet, like I was looking for articles, this man made 31 movies and I was like, there's got to be like a book or something out there, even like a university tome that I could like flip through to get some historical background, maybe production. Nope, nothing. I found some articles on Senses of Cinema, but that was pretty much it when it came to him, which I found really surprising. Well, he was a regular on the festival circuit in the 60s and 70s. He won Best Director at Cannes in 1972 for Red Psalm. But despite this, he never got the same embrace from North American critics and intellectuals as Godard, Antonioni, even Brisson did. You know, Susan Sontag wrote extensively about Brisson when he wasn't that popular. He never quite got that kind of support. And it's not hard for me to see why, because his films are very Hungarian, very immersed in that country's history, to the point where certain of them can be almost indecipherable for a completely ignorant viewer like myself. And, you know, when you mention Hungarian filmmakers, I think a lot of cinephiles' minds go right to Belatar. And there are similarities in both their styles. Like, Miklos loves long takes, long, complicated takes, but where Belatar has kind of this this wry, dry humor, and even humanism in his films, I think that Miklos's films are a little bit more difficult to grasp onto. And you hear a lot of talk when, you know, essays about his movie that, oh, you know, this is representative of this period of Hungarian history. So without knowing that, and because a lot of his films are very abstract in their presentation, that it's tough to find something to connect with. But they are dynamic on their own when you watch them. There are very plastic qualities to them, which is why I found it surprising that there wasn't a cult around him that appreciated them just for the technical feats that are on display. In addition to being or, or taking himself seriously as a sort of national filmmaker of Hungary, he was that rare thing, a revolutionary filmmaker, someone who wanted to create an aesthetic that could either inspire political change or at least an aesthetic that sought to articulate his politics through the style. But unlike somebody like Jean-Luc Godard, who was making, you know, in the early 70s, he was making these very difficult revolutionary films that sought to shock the audience out of their complacency by being very unpleasant, having very ugly sounds and images. The Miklos Jancsó films are very uh, formally beautiful and exciting. However, something that's key to his methodology is he rejected storytelling or conventional, as he called them, story films. He called those politically counter-revolutionary. He said, and I quote, a story, if the film is a good one, carries the spectator away on its wings. It is an evasion, 
However, in the case of his own films, he said, and I'm quoting again, while the film is being projected, the spectator racks his brains trying to order the things he is seeing. He sees himself obliged to. He is active. In other words, a lot of his films, when you watch them for the first time, you're like, oh, I get this. This is the play that my art-loving friend dragged me to, (laughs) where it would be presented in a very abstract form. And I think that right now, people listening to this, move beyond that, because when you watch these movies, they are dazzling displays of what cinema can do. Essentially, in the way that André Bazin thought cinema should be, which is like la camera stylo, or the camera pen, where all of this information is given to the viewer in these long impossibly complex takes like when you watch them and the way that information is revealed or things are built upon each other specifically in Miklos's most like popular period when he made movies like the red and the white the confrontation it's jaw-dropping in its presentation when you see it for the first time and the difficulty comes in just trying to get into it because once you become aware of his style it's one that he keeps returning to this pastoral abstract symbolic way to connect with an audience speaking of style by the way i have a good quote here from jay hoberman who wrote in film comment that yan shows boldly stylized film language appeared to be a synthesis of antonioni elegant widescreen compositions, austere allegorical landscapes, Brasson, impassive performers, exaggerated sound design, and Wells, convoluted tracking shots, intricately choreographed ensembles. Even as his free-floating existential attitudes and empty world iconography evoked the theater of the absurd, albeit without the laughs. And before we get into his filmography, we should talk a little bit about how he got there, because he's one of those filmmakers who started pretty late in the game directing features himself at the age of 44 years old. Well, he was born in 1921. He was raised a Catholic, but left religion behind and became a card-carrying communist by 1945. As you said, he's a late bloomer as a filmmaker. He began as a documentary filmmaker in the 1950s, but he didn't become the filmmaker that we know today until 1966 when he made The Roundup, which was his first huge hit. And a lot of people consider it his best film, but we didn't watch it for this podcast. No, but we did watch The Red and the White from 1967. And by the way, I just want to say... I admired the three films that I watched for this episode. I'd be lying if I said this is a filmmaker who completely hits me where I live. I fear I may end up describing a lot of obvious surface things and regurgitating conventional wisdom. Don't worry, Will. I couldn't find any other podcasts that talked about him. So we're there first. So we can just say the most simple stuff right on the top and then other people can pick up the baton and run with it just like the filmmaking style in the red and the white oh that's beautiful i don't know i'm just worried that all the yan show heads are going to start <laughs> beating down my door uh, accusing me of having a facile reading of these very dense and complicated films but anyway the red and the white This movie, it was a Soviet-Hungarian co-production that was actually commissioned to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the October Revolution, although this was not the celebratory film that its commissioners expected. No, it was made in the thaw that followed the death of Stalin, where, you know, censorship was a little bit looser. And the filmmakers decided, you know what, we're just going to go out there. We have the script that's been approved, but 
eh, you know what? We're not going to follow it, much to the horror of the actual production companies when they saw the final version of the picture. And what you get here is Miklos's style, but in a more realist vein that is kind of linking between his documentary past and the abstract nature that he would later on make his own. It's a story about the Russian Civil War, about the red and the whites fighting it out, and essentially he paints a picture where they're both bad in their own ways. The red are the Bolsheviks, the Russian revolutionaries. They've defeated the whites, the Tsarists, and we encounter a number of Hungarian troops who are helping the Bolsheviks in rural Hungary, where there are still battles being waged over control of certain sections of the land. Some of these Hungarians are captured soldiers who have sensed the way the winds have been blowing and want to get on the winning team to survive. Others are quite genuinely fired up by the communist cause. In the middle of all this, there's a hospital where women are caring for soldiers from either side, but the nurses there end up being terrorized by the czarist forces. And what most of these characters have in common is that we don't get to know them very well. No, like I made a joke about it being a relay race, and that's exactly what it is, where through these long takes, you'll often follow one character, and then by the end of the cut, or sometimes just a scene jump, you'll be following someone else. Now, there are central people that keep popping up, and the camera's like, oh no, wait, I want to follow this one, Richard Linklater slacker style. But it is a film that's difficult to get a grip on beyond the fact that, ah, war as hell, but also look how beautifully it can be presented. I'm glad you said slacker. I thought of that too. Uh, I mean, it's also it's also quite a bit like Bellatar's later Satin Tango, mm -hmm. in the way that like the camera constantly seems to be doing this dance, and characters come in and they come out. The story develops almost rhythmically rather than in a conventional three act way, and it does have a banality of war as hell, where like death and murder is happening, but it seems to be like. This is not that dramatically important. It's just look at the details of this and then we're moving on. The camera is just changing its perspective to go follow somebody else that is alive until they are dead. I like that the film has a very pitiless and unsentimental perspective on warfare. As you say, it unfolds in these long takes and the takes are unmoored from the action. In most films, the camera and the editing are there to serve the narrative. They capture the characters as they're reciting their dialogue. They tell you where to look. They tell you what to think. And in this one, the camera's always moving. And just as it seems something is happening, it moves again. And oftentimes it's just moving as we're getting a bit of very cold and sadistic violence. We see a lot of soldiers who are doing like target practice on people in the distance. A lot of people getting unceremoniously shot in the head and dumped into rivers. And the way the camera works, it's almost as if you have a God's eye view, just coming down and observing all these people who have free will and then drifting around. And something that I appreciated about it is that why while those camera moves are so complex and pinpoint in their accuracy, I was really pleased to learn that a lot of them were just improvised on the day, that he didn't go in with the plan of like, all right, this will be what the camera will do in this scene. Oftentimes, they, they would have a general idea of what was going to happen. And based on who showed up and what resources they had on that day, they're like, all right, this is what it's going to be. For example, one of the most iconic scenes in the picture is an out of nowhere dance number. And that was just made up on the day because that's what was available for him to do that for him to do with that shoot wow that's mind-boggling given how precise everything looks 
Uh, anyway, as with any film, your own lived experience will inform how you respond to this one. I can only imagine what it was like for the Soviet audiences who saw the film, because like anyone anywhere around the world, you've been fed uh, you know, a very long, steady diet of propaganda about your country's glorious history. Well, spoiler alert, they didn't actually see the version that me and you watched because there was a heavily edited version that wasn't available till I think the DVD release. And because they removed all the nudity, any reference of them being cruel, of like both siding it. And so essentially, it is a very odd film with long takes that are interrupted with just like horses galloping because that was their transition point. I mean, what's unique about this film is it's one thing to make a movie that depicts war as hell, which many movies have done. But this one depicts war as senseless. There's an existential anguish here. Like even most war is hell movies, like there's a certain glory to that. There's no drama in this film. Right. Like, death just happens. For example, we're following one guy as he's talking about defending a base. And then he just kills himself when the other forces arrive by jumping off of a tower. And it's presented like as if you were just there. Not a big moment, happens off screen, you just hear, ah! and then the scene continues with new characters who have just arrived. It's a bit of a frustrating viewing experience because it's a little hard to keep track of who is who, which side is which side. That's the point, Will, you're not supposed to know. I know, and, and that's what's great about it too. Like there, there are victories, there are losses, and yet through those victories and losses, it just feels like we're on the same bit of muddy land that's being claimed and reclaimed. And I mean, if I feel a little bit more distant from the movie than I wish I did, I guess that's my problem. <laughs> yeah. What we need is another war. <laughs> yeah. Let us know, you know, how impactful this really should be. It's a great film, obviously. And so moving on, we should talk about probably his most famous picture, which is his film Red Psalm from 1972. And this is where he's in his most symbolist storytelling mode where you are presented again another revolution and this one like almost all of his films that present this is one doomed to failure but in this case the interesting thing is it's a musical kind of a folk musical if you will where the music is diegetic but then sometimes it's also not because we have a guitar player that seems to be right out of something about mary who actually uh, suffers the same fate as a guitar player in something about mary well yeah i'm sure the Farrelly brothers were heavily influenced <laughs> by red psalm yep. i mean for me the viewing experience of this one agony and ecstasy mm -hmm. heavily intertwined because okay the film takes place towards the end of the 19th century. It's in the aftermath of a peasant revolt in Hungary. That's about it for plot, but there is a lot of additional stuff in it. Visually, technically, conceptually, I've never seen anything like this. This film is only 26 shots in the, like that just play out in their entirety. And they're not simple shots. They involve horses and people and dance numbers that just break out like six minutes into a take so it is a visual and audio feast but it's also one where you're going all right what like where is the dramatic kind of meat to this narrative because you're not going to find it unless you are deep in the history that it's representing but how about a little bit of that history i know from reading up on the film that uh yancho was influenced by a particular historian named dejo naj Again, pardon if I'm mispronouncing that. 
uh, this historian argued that music and folklore were an integral part of the peasant uprisings that actually happened in the late 19th century in Hungary. So a lot of his style is influenced by that. He wants to kind of get back to what he saw as that primal influence of folk singing and music and poetry and all that, just just dense in the frame. Uh, Jay Hoberman called this movie a socialist passion play, the way that it goes out. I don't quite know how to describe what happens in this film or to convey the sensual experience of watching it, except that the camera is constantly dancing between these groups of people that are constantly moving in a field. You've got peasants, soldiers, clergymen, prostitutes, etc. In the grand history of Marxist filmmaking, a lot of these people are defined more by their groups than their individual and personalities. And groups across screen as well. Like, you're not supposed to focus in on one character and follow that story because you will just find it a frustrating experience as everything is shifting. And right when you think you have a grip on thing, someone will be like shot in their hand and then it'll just be a representative thing like you would see at an outdoor play. There is a stunningly realized and shocking scene about halfway through where all the strikers have been surrounded by all the soldiers in this big field. These two, like, I mean, these films are as much about geometry as they are about narrative. I would argue that they're almost all about geometry, that they are spider webs, that when you look at them, you're like, how did this get built? And that is the way into the actual meat of them that like the director is very aware of what he's doing. Like he doesn't want you to get like lost in the take and forget about it. He wants you to be following and going, how are they doing this? And that that like you know, form is also interacting with the content. This incredibly complicated scene where all the peasants are in this group in the middle, all the soldiers are in this circle around them, and then the soldiers massacre the peasants. And what's funny is reading up on this movie, Jay Hoberman says that this is actually one of Yan Cho's more optimistic movies. Yeah, there's an ending where, you know, there's a little bit of hope where it's like their cause is taken up. And as we see in some other films that we'll talk about, you know, the revolutionaries can't be killed because they will continue living on forever. Yeah, Hoberman wrote that this is an attempt to recast history as ritual if it's a socialist passion play. And the long takes are very important here because the long takes, you know, you can see how his aesthetic is political because he wants to give the sense that history is ongoing. It's not static. It's not, um, you know, it's not a series of eras. It's a continuum. And also, you know, in that classical way that Straub and Uyese say that like they will not give you any release because to give you release would make you think that, oh, okay, this problem is solved. I've seen a solution presented in this narrative, so I don't need to like take up arms and hit the street. And these movies, they just want you to feel like, all right, you need to jump back in and you need to be involved in this. I know that in 1974's Electra, my love a movie that i otherwise have very little to say about it's very similar to the other film that we just talked about except this one is done in only 12 shots in this one yancho said that the film is a parable for the idea that revolutionaries must continually renew themselves and again as you say 12 shots and if anything the shots in this movie electra my love are even more complex. The opening shot of Electra My Love, anyone listening to this has never seen a shot like that. It actually ends with the characters in close-up and the sun is setting. So I was like, they only got one shot at this if this is the final point that they wanted to reach. I don't know. It rewires your brain in how to look at a movie. It rewires your brain in how to process visual information. I mean, I'm so used to the 
Hollywood mm -hmm. method of composing a shot and cutting a scene. It, this requires so much more active participation from the audience to keep track of everything that's going on. And Electro My Love also ends on a note, which is like, hey, man, you thought you were watching the past? Now look, there's a helicopter. The revolution continues. And I feel like that is just a symbol of the way that kind of critics treated Miklos following that film that they found that he was getting repetitive that his stuff was maybe a little bit too on the nose i certainly thought he was getting a bit repetitive by this <laughs> <Yes>. third movie <laughs> i should note though i was like will don't watch electro my love it's exactly like the other one that you watch and you're like 74 minutes i gotta check it out i, I wanted to watch a third movie i thought it was the right thing to do and this is you know hey i gotta give this guy credit 90 minutes or less every time <laughs> <That's true. laughs> i mean i actually checked out a film he made in 1999 where he completely changed his filmmaking style gone are the long takes now it's all little absurdist sketches that reminded me of late period jerry lewis oh you're selling me in a picture called the lord's lantern in budapest it stars two comedians who play the characters pepe and kakpa and they went on in six films that's how popular it was and in the first one they play grave diggers but they also like switch characters actors will play different people from shot to shot so you are completely lost and the movie knows you're completely completely lost and that's the joke to the point that the screenwriter and the director show up playing themselves in the film wow sounds like a real hell's a poppin and it was super popular that supposedly the young hungarian cinephile crowd really latched onto it and allowed miklos to continue making movies and he pumped out like another five after that in this style including a final one where like they time travel to try to stop a battle that happened this is blowing my mind please to explain to me how did he go from this dead serious depressing revolutionary filmmaker of the late 60s and early 70s to after the fall of the Berlin Wall becoming the king of comedy well king of comedy is probably a stretch <laughs> I think that if you showed his 60s movies or his late 90s movies to someone who had never experienced him they would have the same befuddled expression on their face <laughs> but they are completely kind of different in tone and intent like one of the jokes in the Lord's Lantern in Budapest is one guy gets a boner every time his friend grabs him and like that keeps playing out throughout oh we've all been there fellas and so i think that what's interesting about him is that like we said at the beginning of the episode he is someone that has fallen completely through the cracks even though he continued to work throughout the years like he passed away like only a couple of years ago and he was making movies up until then yeah and it's remarkable that he didn't get the kind of international following that some of his contemporaries did just because you know he was on the festival circuit he was a filmmaker of the moment who was dealing with concerns that yes to some degree were specifically hungarian but many many people including a number of filmmakers were very interested in the late 60s and early 70s about what does a revolutionary cinema look like and it's strange that he didn't get the kind of intellectual supporters that Godard did. Well, I hope people who've listened to this are interested enough because we've made it sound appealing, if difficult. <laughs> because, like, I would say check out Electro My Love because that is his style, you know, that long take pastoral style, as powerful as, as it can be. And then I'd probably say uh, check out The Red and the White as well. Electro My Love, I'm sorry if I sounded like I was underselling it because it is incredible. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've never seen anything like it. I hated watching it, but it's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> what a salesman you are, yeah. Will. So, you 
you can send us letters as per usual at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com and our first letter is from adarsh jose and it goes dear justin and will i'm a regular listener to your podcast and this is my second time writing a letter to you guys the first time i recommended a few indian movies and kindly enough justin compiled those in a letterbox page well thank you very much for sending that first letter thank you and i'm sorry that i haven't watched any of them because uh those movies are very long <laughs> Uh, but God, I, I'm so frustrated that that I haven't been watching very many Indian movies lately, you know? I know. We can't go to the cinema and watch them. That's how we were really like taking it in. Even the old classics. It's like, God, I got to find three hours. I'm <laughs> yeah. a man with two podcasts. Let me go on Twitter and just scroll through yeah, for yeah. two hours instead. <laughs> yeah, definitely. When revisiting one of your earlier podcasts on Indian cinema, I found and was so sad that you guys knew about our cinema primarily through Shah Rukh Khan and Amitabh Bakchan. Okay. First of all, I apologize for that. You're not the first Bollywood buff uh, to come at us and say that we weren't that well informed. All I can say is that you're right. But I think he's saying more that that's the way we tackled it from those angles, as opposed to, you know, other filmmakers. And what I have to say is that those two actors, they have the most content written about them in English. Which that's is true. Like, and our entry point, and I feel like most people listening to this podcast aren't aware of them either. Unless, Yeah, it's easy for guys like us, too, because if you sell Shah Rukh Khan to me as, oh, he's the Tom Cruise of India, <laughs> I know what that means, and I can jump in. As both of you love to explore good movies, I beg you to watch at least one film in which I sent earlier. He's making a plea with... Okay, I will. I promise I will. On that list, I think there was one or two I'd already seen. I have a few questions to ask. It would be interesting to hear your opinion on the topic of is cinema dead? Ooh, big question. Famous filmmakers like Scorsese, Godard, and David Lynch often say that actual cinema is no more and art houses are dead. Do you guys feel the same? Is the graph declining? Now, I'm not sure if he's saying that, like, the cinema is dead, as in the uh, experience of going to the cinema, or cinema in of itself as an art form. Cinema in the Jean-Luc Godard sense is, yeah. is dead. I think there are no easy answers to this question. No. For you, it's an easy answer. Yes. For me, I would say that a cinema as we knew it may be dying, but it may be turning into something else. And the barriers between forms such as movies, TV shows, gallery installations, uh, YouTube web shows, all of those are crumbling. I'm fascinated at talking to Will I don't think you've enjoyed like a blockbuster in the last five years that have come out. Well, I liked the Mission Impossible movies. Right, that's right. You did. I think I liked uh, Fast 7. I think <laughs> that, that was the last one of those I liked. Um, yeah, I mean, I think is I want to like them. But I feel like as we get older and new stuff is coming and things are changing, it's hard for us to like adapt to it. And we're like, ah, this is bad. I am still only in my early 30s. <laughs> I mean, usually the way that you talk about yourself, you're like an old man. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I guess I can't have it both ways, can I? I mean, I'm sorry. I think the blockbusters speak for themselves. Letter writer also asked, would it be possible to do an episode on transgressive cinema or even tackle a filmmaker like Michael Haneke? Yes, to both, I'm sure. Uh, we're definitely going to get to them. He also mentions that we didn't do an episode on Jim Jarmusch, which is shocking. That is crazy we haven't done him. But I want to get back to that idea of transgressive cinema. I'm curious what the letter writer means by that. The letter writer mentions that that a filmmaker like Michael Haneke says that a great film should make you look away from the screen. Others, like Abbas Kiarostami, says that one should never provoke your audience. So first of all, I think Haneke is full of shit. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Haneke is like, I just don't like movies. Uh, secondly, I'm, I'm more naturally sympathetic to Abbas Kiarostami. I think he's the greater filmmaker and probably also the greater man. I like Abbas Kiarostami saying, I 
like to go see a movie and just fall asleep during it and you know you wake up see what's going on <laughs> i can get behind kiristami's statement that you should fall asleep in movies but not so much his statement that they should never provoke you yeah i don't agree with that either but maybe it sounded better in context i don't know so thank you very much for that letter and our next letter is from aj serrano and he goes hey justin and will which living director that you consider to be past their prime would you like to see make one more great movie all of them <laughs> yeah hey of- if terry gilliam shows up tomorrow with oh, with boy. a masterpiece <laughs> i would be so happy or Dario argento's like oh i figured out what people like about my movies i'll do that now that would be fantastic yeah but i don't think that's gonna be happening anytime soon yeah i mean maybe like a uh dead serious director like michael haneke has a swing like we mentioned in this episode he starts making like surreal slapstick comedies that last one he made happy end was kind of a comedy mm. but it was a haneke comedy I yeah exactly so as per usual you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com and what are we doing on a patreon this week will we are talking about sam peckinpah's controversial classic straw dogs will had never seen it before and i hadn't watched it in a long time so get ready for a deep dive into a movie that everybody's talked about before <laughs> you say that but it's like i've never seen it i've never read anything about it really so mm-hmm. let's so it's all fresh to you yeah yeah so you can check that out at patreon.com slash the important cinema club and what are we doing next week next will? week we are traveling from hungary to japan let's have some fun <laughs> to talk about a very different filmmaker yes the actor, martial artist, sometimes director, Sonny Chiba. Yes, we're going to be talking about his vast filmography, but of course we'll be focusing in on stuff like The Street Fighter, which I think he's probably most famously known for in the West. So that's what we'll be doing next week. Until then, my name's Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Let's all go to the lobby because we just went to the drive-in. That's right. Separately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not together. Did you go to the five drive-in? I in did o- indeed. Oakville? Yeah. Yeah. We both went to see F9. Yeah, that's right. Because in the province of Ontario, where we live, that is currently the only way to go see a movie in public. And you better not step out of that car because you'll be asked to go back in. <laughs> and you know, it's crazy because F9, the fast saga as it's officially called number one movie in the world right now and the only way you can see it it's not on on demand the only way you can see it in canada or in toronto like this movie in normal times in downtown toronto you could get it see it 20 times a day on one screen oh yeah definitely you could just go in and then turn around and go to a different cinema right after down the street and watch it. right now the only way in toronto to see it is to drive to a neighboring town and go to see it in one of its one nightly screenings that's, that's right. insane did you do it on the double bill with the movie that nobody wants to stay for and then they leave well yeah i mean because the movie starts at 9 30 by the time it's over and this movie is two and a half hours long it's long by the time it's over i'm ready to go to bed now i love the oakville five especially that i had never really been to drive-ins or have any memories of going to the drive-in before that you know back in the day we could just get out of your car get some popcorn see the oakvillians throw each other into soda machines which i saw the first time i ever went there play on the park that's in front of the screen if you want and you know you said it's the only way to see the fast nine side I say it's the only way. I said I said that F9 is a good movie to see at the drive-in. Oh, I don't know about that because I was squinting through all of it because the projection sucks. That's true, but I also think part of the problem is the movie itself because movies are not really made for drive-ins anymore. No, definitely not. They're, they're all dark. They have a lot of post-production mm. digital tinkering to make them look dark. I mean, if you got a good projector, it was a little bit brighter. I think it would be better. The Oakville 5 has had like the worst on their uh, number one screen projector since I started going there. I remember seeing the 
amazing Spider-Man and being like, what's going on? I can't see anything. Yeah. So there was a good at least quarter, maybe third of the movie that I couldn't really make out. But whatever. I like going to the drive-in, though. That's fun. Just hanging out in the car. You can chit-chat with whoever you're with. You know, we brought our dog. And the dog probably just fell asleep in the back seat as the movie was playing. Uh, Yeah, the dog was very afraid. Oh, really? Yeah, it's it's a young dog. We should not have brought our dog. Well, if we left it at home, we would have chewed up the couch. So, you know, we're kind of stuck. Still, you had that dog for like six months. He's he's a little bastard is what he is. (laughs) So I just want to say that I love the drive-in. I will keep going to the drive-in when the opportunities present themselves. And I'm glad they're still open. Yeah, I'll probably check out Space Jam 2 there in a week or two. (laughs) That's actually a good film to go to the drive-in. What is that opening? The 16th. Are we not going to have theaters (laughs) by the 16th? Probably not. But either way, I think I'd like to see it at the drive-in. So you can like crack wise, play Mystery Science Theater 2000 with whoever you're watching it with. How did this get made? Oh, wait. How did this get made? Yeah. (laughs) 